0: I'm Linda Laurel, creator and host of Our Voices Matter. Why this podcast and why now? Because it's time for us all to take a deep breath and listen. I am a journalist, business owner, keynote speaker, founder of an education nonprofit, wife, mother, daughter, sister, dancer, and lover of life, and my country, And like so many of you, I am deeply distressed at the deteriorating level of discourse in our democracy. This podcast is my humble attempt to do something about it, one story at a time. It is my hope that as you listen to and watch the stories of someone you might consider to be the other, that you will somehow see a glimpse of yourself and be reminded of our common humanity. So what do you say? Let's take this journey together. This episode is sponsored by the Bilateral Chamber of Commerce, an exclusive membership-based network of international business leadership. The Chamber develops and advances strategic global connections to foster business opportunities that lead to economic growth for companies looking to succeed in the global economy. Welcome to Our Voices Matter a podcast dedicated to empowering us all to better understand each other. Our goal, to replace fear with knowledge, disdain with respect, and hate with love, one story at a time. So let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Our Voices Matter. Very excited to have with us Ruby Powers of the Powers Law Firm. Ruby, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. So Ruby is an immigration attorney, and not just any immigration attorney. She's one of the go one of the go to people. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, "Yeah, we always send people to to Ruby because she's right in the thick of it." So um, tell us how you are involved in the whole um, immigration debate right now with your clients. How, how are things going? I would imagine you're very busy.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's quite an honor. Uh, I've been in immigration uh, for more, I've been a practicing immigration attorney for 10 years. And, and so um, it's, I've learned so much Mm -hmm. in the last 10 years, but in the last couple of years it's been, it's been very different. It seems to be more of a, a bit of an anti-immigrant sentiment, and processing times are taking longer. Everything just seems to be a, bit, a little bit more difficult, and there's lots of changes at a moment's notice. Everything from family separation that really caught a lot of us off guard last summer, to um, government shutdown impacting immigration, and you know, just you know, generally, we, every year before it became this sort of hostile, I guess, what you could say. Uh, you know, our goal was to try to get immigration reform. We were trying to be, pro- you know, progressively trying to find a solution so that we wouldn't be dealing with what we're having to deal with right here. And um, I feel like that conversation hasn't been, you know, as prevalent in the last couple of years because we've been more of like in a defensive mode, trying to make sure our clients don't get deported or trying to fight for programs that are being trying to be taken away at a moment's notice. So what was the conversation that you were
0: having a couple of years um, prior to these last two? What were those conversations like?
1: You know, under so I've only practiced law under two presidents, Obama and Trump. Under President Obama, we were given a lot of notice about any change, maybe six months, 12 months. It allowed us time to change our strategy, notify our client, and adapt because we had enough time. And then we also could talk about what we, it was a little bit more calm in that respect. That we could talk about what would we be ways to improve the system. You know, under President Obama, we received DACA, for example, what a lot of people call for the Dreamers. Um, and that's just sort of the sort of like the the framework it was under Trump, President Trump. It's been a lot of constant changes. I mean, it started off with the travel ban in January of 2017, and it really hasn't stopped since then. And you know, I think we're at travel ban 3.0, and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there's family separation, government shutdowns. We get have DACA, we don't have DACA. Then what lawsuits going on at the time? You know, it's really confusing, um, eating away at asylum law uh, under Attorney General Sessions last summer, or most of last year, trying to take away provisions for victims of domestic violence in asylum or those of victims of gangs. So it's just like we're—it's almost like whack-a-mole right now. It's mm. like there's something over here with employment, investment, naturalizations taking longer, citizenship, um, asylum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's exhausting, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So
0: you spend some time at the border. You have mm-hmm. clients, um, and that sometimes will uh, necessitate that you go to the border. Mm-hmm. What are mm-hmm. you seeing there?
1: Well, I went a lot to the border last uh, last year because I was. Uh, working on some pro bono cases, specifically after there was a zero tolerance policy where they split the parents from the children. It started in May 2018. And it didn't end until June 20th on the executive order of 2018. So that's why I was there a couple of times and I sent my associate as well. We were there mostly to help give our aid uh, legal advice because people not only were applying for asylum in the tumultuous times where the case law was being changed almost unilaterally by the the then Attorney General, but also they were traumatized by their children being ripped away from them.
0: Did you have clients whose children were taken from them? Of
1: course, I did. I I took care. uh, I still have a couple of them right now that I took all the way from the detention centers. Um, now they've been released and they've been reunited, and I'm working through their cases. But also, it was like a, a legal relay race. It was, it was like I don't know. We were all first response legal first responders we were coming to the aid most of us run our own businesses have small children and are busy we can't drop everything for months on end so i would go for a couple days somebody else would tag team and could take care of a case and we would communicate with each other over text and whatsapp and email and try to help as many people as we could Um, and a lot of attorneys were swooping in from around the country down to our border uh, in Texas um, to, to help others and so I might have helped out in a small way by help connect them with an attorney or give them advice or help out with a hearing but um, in the long run I've, I've helped uh, reunify at least two families uh, directly where I flew down there reunified them and um, later have taken on the case since then. that
0: must have been very rewarding
1: I you know I it was difficult times, and I think whenever I think about that summer, um, it, it puts me in a place where it's, it's hard to keep my composure, but it, it, it has been really Why? Rewarding. Tell me, what, what was going oh, on there from an emotional standpoint? Um, well, I think it's very inhumane to rip children from parents. I don't see what they did wrong. I mean, all of a sudden, they uh, just created this procedure This process to really to discourage um, people from from applying for asylum which I believe is against any particular law Uh, you know asylum human rights and I think that we still don't know you know what the results going to be but the US's actions in doing so and actually they're still separating to this day but it's not in the same numbers and it's not getting as much attention so separations are still happening? There are, because there's ways that you can consider a child an unaccompanied minor, and I think that there's not as much oversight. but um, And so that it still is happening. And there's also people who were separated last summer that still are being reunited, still to this day, which I think is, is just horrific. I'm hearing stories of children having major PTSD and separation anxiety. I mean, I think the years from now, will have more information of how that trauma impacted the children in such formative years and their learning and, you know, attachment. But I mean, it, as a mother of two small children, as a human, it, it was traumatizing because I went into the Porto-Zilla Detention Center before, it was right after the executive order had been announced that they were going to quit separating. But it was right before I found out about the ACLU's litigation, the Miss L case that said that it was the government's duty to reunify all the children within uh, 15 to 30 days. So I went in, I didn't know that that, was, that had just happened because I was in a detention facility without any information and yeah. phones and electronics and internet. And most of the time I spent thinking I was going to talk about their legal, their case, I really just... Listen to them being traumatized about their separation and how they were lied to when the children were taken away from them They were told that they would be there when they came back and they weren't and I just heard so many horrific stories, but it was very consistent that the the children were lied to the parents were lied to and it Would took almost a week and a half or two weeks maybe even three before many of the parents were able to talk to their children and imagine the logistics of children being in detention and parents being in detention. They couldn't, you know, you play phone tag in a busy schedule. Play, try playing phone tag where two people are in detention. It took a lot of work to get them to be able to communicate with each other. But in a room that was right next to me through a glass window, I started seeing some of the parents. the 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 guard was calling the the child and giving the phone to the parent, and the faces just. It's hard. It's really hard. And you could tell I that know. they were talking to their child for probably the first time after having all of that happen to them. And so, you know, on one hand, I'm a human, a mom, and, uh, you know, trying to... Yeah, all of those things. And then on the other hand, I'm an immigration attorney, and I'm trying to get to the root of their case. And it's like, okay, tell me what happened, you know, and let's, let's try to figure out how we can... Uh, Prepare you for your case ahead, because I might be the only attorney they had the opportunity to speak to, and I was going in there pro bono. I mean, that's most of the people there had no, re, you know, resources to afford an attorney, and um, and the statistics show that if you don't have an attorney when you're in an asylum application, you have a very very little chance of winning. So I knew I was pr- maybe their only hope for at least even if it had 30 minutes, 60 minutes to be able to talk with them. So it's, it was an emotional experience, and um, I, I still relive it when I talk about that story, but also when I work with my clients who've overcome that. And I really want to make sure that that story never is forgotten, that the U.S. government did that in 2018, and I think is still doing it on a very small scale with little oversight.
0: How is this possible? How did we get here?
1: Oh, you're asking a lot of tough questions. I, know. <laughs> I mean, how? It's just so. I think that there's. We're being distracted on many different levels, um, and the advocates who care about immigration um, are being overwhelmed. Um, on one hand, you know, asylum law was being changed with the matter of AB, then there was wait times, and then there was a new attorney general, another. Secretary of State. Um, there were no, you know, there were policy change after policy change. And like I mentioned, under the Obama years, we were generally given enough time to take it in, analyze it, think of all our hundreds of clients we have, and mm-hmm. figure out how that will apply to them. But the, those who are working tirelessly for immigrants in all different levels, from nonprofits to NGOs to attorneys to other groups, I think we're just really overwhelmed and we're being bombarded. But I, I mean, that's, and that's, so it's harder for us to fight, but it's a constant battle. And I'm really grateful to lots of different groups um, who are constantly working hard to, to keep the government in check.
0: So you are literally in the trenches in this, in this uh, debate. Um, and you are seeing the impact on human lives every single day. Um, based on what you see and your um, perspective as an immigration attorney, what do you think is the answer to some sort of comprehensive immigration reform? I mean, nobody wants open borders where anybody gets to come in just because they want to. I don't think anybody is advocating that, Mm -hmm. but there has to be a, a better way to go about this so that children and, and, and parents are not literally ripped apart. What do you think are some of the steps that we as a nation and our Congress mm-hmm. and our president can take together to mitigate this situation?
1: Well, the answer to that, there's lots of different aspects to that. Uh, in many cases, I've always been wanting to get comprehensive immigration reform because you wanna look at the big picture. And I think that's really hard, practically, for that to get passed. A lot of times what gets passed are little stop gaps that later on become, or little band-aids that become bottlenecks later on. Uh, one case in point was in 1996, 97, there was passing of a bill called IRA IRA, a law. And basically, it the idea was to keep people from coming in by having a consequence of overstaying. Well, it actually had the reverse effect. Because it was so dangerous to overstay, uh, or to leave after overstaying, most people never left, and that's where why we have about 11 million or so, whatever the number is right now, of people who've either entered legally and overstayed, or maybe entered and, and never left.
0: Because it was more dangerous for them to leave.
1: It would. It was almost insurmountable for them to be able to come back uh, in some legal fashion because oh, a, a bar was made okay. of unlawful presence of of a a one-year, a 10-year, or maybe a permanent bar if they left after overstaying. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for forgiveness. So there's that law that's sort of in the framework in the background that a lot of people see. There's not enough visas in some cases for um, employment-based cases, the H-1Bs comes up in mind. It's an H-1B season at the beginning of every year. Um, I think what's also happening is there's a lot of processing backlogs. I think for solutions, you've got to find a way to help the people, like the dreamers, for example. We need to have some solution there because those children came, and they're not children anymore. They're in their 30s, and Mm -hmm. they have children Mm -hmm. almost somewhere in middle school potentially, and they're they're part of the bedrock of our our communities, especially in California and Texas. They need to have stability because they, they don't even know where to build their home on. It's like building on sand because they don't know what their status is going to be, and you know they, the last couple of years it's been a lot of you have it or you don't. DACA has been in litigation, so the dreamers need a solution, but you also need to find a way for the ten or eleven million people who've overstayed or in some capacity are not in status, because there isn't really a simple fix. Um, a couple years in two thousand, in the early two thousands, there was a, a law that said if you filed a petition. By a certain date, and you paid a fine, that you know basically you could still proceed. There needs to be some type of way for them to like have a waiver or forgiveness to be able to overcome those very draconian laws from 1996, 97 that created a lot of um, roadblocks for people. Mm-hmm. And I think just in in general, um, you know, there's just so many different facets. But I don't think we should. We need to also change the, the high, higher American buyer American, that's very anti international minded, and we need to make the U S more of a place that's open to bright young minds who want to come to the United States um, and for new technologies and new industries. I mean, who's to say we know everything? We should we should attract that talent to the United States and mm-hmm. make it easier for them. What do you say?
0: To um, the people um, I was going to say on the far right, but really any anyone who believes that um, what has been happening at the border is the right thing in terms of detaining people mm-hmm. and the way that um, the current administration has really made this issue front and center and has Really cracked down on on how we were doing things in the past what's your
1: so it's Try to answer that some because there's lots of different things that have been changing in just the last twelve months or so. but in general, under President Obama there were a lot of deportations from um, but there still was a lot more opportunity, I think, for people who entered to still go through the process to apply um, and just see what they were eligible for. Now things have been a lot more difficult in terms of the case law changes for asylum, but also when people are, well what's happening right now is the remain in Mexico policy. And what they're saying is that they won't allow, they're they're limiting the amount of people that could enter at a port of entry without a visa. They're metering, that's been more prevalent the last couple years. But also those who do come that way, they're, sending, they're they're planning and have, for a few people, send them back to Mexico to wait for their case to be pending. I think in general, I would say there's not more people coming than there have been in the past. I think a lot of this has been exaggerated and created into some manufactured chaos that's trying to attract attention and say that this is an emergency. You'll see city after city on the border, mayors and sheriffs and, and reps and senators say that this is not an emergency. It's not like it's been before, and in fact, there's less numbers. It's just that it's getting more attention and using words like caravan and emergency Mm -hmm, and border mm -hmm. wall and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing we owe anyone is the opportunity to go through a reasonably dignified due process for them to be reviewed for their eligibility, or form of relief. And if they're not eligible, sure, I understand. They can't stay. But if they are, they should be given that opportunity.
0: And and during the process to keep the humanity right. in place.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Not be in freezing rooms and not be in cages and not be separated from their children. And, I mean, that's just the start of it. We're not even talking about, what is it, like $15 tubes of toothpaste mm-hmm. and And the phone calls, even with my clients, I'll have to put the money on their account to even talk to them. You know, it's it's very expensive uh, just to even communicate with detainees.
0: Wow. You are clearly very passionate about this. What is driving you? Why did you go into immigration law?
1: Well, I always start with my maternal grandparents were American missionaries in Mexico because I think that helps explain the lens that I see the world from. Uh, They were very service-oriented. They gave their whole lives to the ministry. Uh, I grew up in the summers in Mexico. My mom was born in Mexico. Uh, Spanish was her first language. I I had the luxury of seeing the world from two countries' point of view, the United States and Mexico. And then later on, I I had the opportunity to travel with Rotary as an exchange student to Belgium. I learned French in a few months. It was crazy. And that was before internet was so all over the place. And I, I really had to learn to, to really live in a new culture. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't just call home every day. And, and so between the service background of my grandparents, um, international background of the family, but also my travels, later living in, in Belgium and in Turkey and Spain, um, it, it just it just made sense. Like, how could I combine business, I have my own law firm, human rights, I help those who need and who are fleeing from horrible things around the world, and, um, and government, you know, I'm helping navigate policies and laws. And so when I look back at some of my applications in high school, that's what I said I wanted to do. And, and that's what I'm, I'm doing. And I didn't really know what that would look like, but, but here I am doing exactly what I, I thought I was going to do as a teenager, and. Um, I want to give back to those who need the most help, those who can't help defend themselves. And so in a way, I, you know, having, on the other side, they were they were farmers and business owners. And so I'm a combination, service, international relations, and an entrepreneur.
0: You're doing what you were put on this earth to do. <laughs> you're, you, I can see it. I mean, you radiate it. And it's, it's really beautiful to, to see that you're living exactly what you feel and you're living your um, I guess your your priorities you know it's it's really it's really quite remarkable um, is there a particular case that stands out in your mind that is one that you'll never forget or that's been the most rewarding or I mean is there anything that comes to mind
1: well there's There's a lot of great cases, and I always have to be careful about giving too much detail. Sure. But, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with asylum. My love is that I can help people in in dire need overcome situations, whether from governments or their political opinion or their gender, race, and be able to overcome all, all, uh, be able to find a new life. And one thing that I've really enjoyed is really helping women asylum seekers. I mean, I love helping all those. And the hate part is the fact that it's just so emotionally draining. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not sure if you're going to win. And you get so involved with their case. But in general, I I try to stay positive. So what I I feel like was one of my missions is to help women who generally are in more of a difficult situation around the world. Uh, when they're applying for asylum here in the United States so that with the goal that they can become leaders and thought leaders for other generations in their home country in whatever respect that may be from being authors or you know bloggers or or maybe maybe one day if it's safe for them to go back to their country to be a leader in some other respect.
0: You speak like a leader. Do you think politics are in your
1: future? Well, um, I think that I – th- I feel like it's a natural inclination of mine. Um, just, I, was, um, I used to work for the Committee on Homeland Security in, in D.C., and I've interned in D.C. and in Austin. And I just realized, you know, I not only having the formal education of a go- government major or a law degree um, and having worked with the government – but I also need to go back and I need to go home and see what work in the field and see how things run. And having been a business owner, having been an attorney and a mother and two small children, um, I, I feel like I'm more equipped now than I was before of knowing how I can help better serve my community. So uh, I think that it's possible in the future. Um, it's just a, a matter of probably t- of timing.
0: Timing, yeah. Well, when you're ready to declare, (laughs) whatever that turns out to be, please break the news here. Please let me know. I would love to. Yeah. 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 I just, you know, you're going places. I mean, you know, we've become friends over the last couple of years, but the more that I get to know you and the more that I talk to you and see your passion and see how you're living it. I just am so impressed with um with what you're doing and how you're trying to give a voice to those who don't often have it so
1: well, I feel like it's it's my duty to do that I don't know It's just like I have a drive, and um I just have to keep um, keep on keeping on and just I feel like I'm trying to be the voice uh, for those who who can't be, you know whether it's an undocumented immigrant or you know, a battered woman or someone fleeing from a country that they can't speak up about. And so I just feel like that's my duty. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity to be able to do what I'm doing. And how you're modeling
0: for your children.
1: That's true. I think about them regularly and how I want them to be proud and know that this is normal and this is this is what they should do, too, because I saw... I learned a lot from my grandparents and my parents, and I want them to see that in me as well.
0: I'm so glad that we took time to to chat with you today. This is really inspiring, and um, you know, when I started the the podcast, I was pretty clear um, when I put all the information out that I did not want this show to be about politics, and I and this is probably as close to political as we've gotten so far, <laughs> just because, but you know, the, the whole point is we have to be able to talk mm-hmm. within the context of what's going on politically. But the idea here is to be able to talk about and share the stories, whatever they are, from all uh, spectrums, um, so that we can get to know each other better and we can see each other's point of view maybe people who are listening don't necessarily agree with everything you said as it relates to immigration, but the bottom line is we're all human beings, mm-hmm. and we've got to be able to look at look at things through that, that lens, and I think you articulated that so beautifully.
1: Well, thank you, and I think immigration is really complex, so it's really hard to have like a five-minute conversation um, with just anyone who maybe doesn't really know all the background, and it does get politicized so quickly, you know. <laughs> It's it's um, it's a bit challenging because people seem to go into the conversation with a mindset, and you know I'm I'm open minded. I see it from having gone through the process with my husband, um, and and my mother as well. And Your
0: husband is from Turkey. He's
1: from Turkey, right? And so we went through the whole government immigration process where we went to an interview, and we didn't have an attorney at the time, so we watched the movie um, Green Card or something. <laughs> seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no tips to my planes, Right. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing was the interview, like, she was so distracted by something that she thought I was the foreigner. <laughs> <don't> wow. <laughs> I was the petitioner, and um, anyway, so you know that's what I also bring to the table is that having my mom was born in Mexico, a lot of my cousins and uncles and aunts have been born in foreign countries, most of my family are my clients, <laughs> <laughs> true story, um, and my, having gone through it with my husband, you know that helps give me a, a whole other level of empathy yeah. for, for my clients as well.
0: Love that word, empathy. We all need more of it, <laughs> we true. truly do. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to add that I haven't given you a chance
1: to say? You know, I just, I feel like we need to get the conversation about like what you had asked me, how do we fix this? Because I feel like that hasn't been part of the conversation for, for a while. And you know, I've, I go to Austin for, for bills, I'm gonna be there in, in March for, to help talk to the state legislature about immigration. And I'm going to D.C. In, in, um, in April to try to talk about reform and changes. And I think we just need to keep that conversation going because no matter what, whether it's this administration or the next, somehow we will need to get some type of change with immigration because it's not going away. In fact, it's just getting worse if we just keep ignoring it. So I hope that we can, in the future, find some type of a solution. And I think it needs to happen soon.
0: Well, I have no doubt that you're going to be a big part of that. I, I really do, oh, because you have be. such unique perspectives and and um, and you bring such a big, beautiful heart to the table. and that's that's really appreciated. Thank you so much, Ruby. And I love that you said, you know you have an open mind, and that's what we ask our viewers and listeners to do to have an open mind as we give our guests permission to speak. So thank you, thank you for watching and for listening. and we'll see you next time. If the mission of Our Voices Matter resonates with you, please like, subscribe, download, and share, and then join the conversation because it really is going to take all of us to make a difference.